0: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick, and I'm very thrilled to announce today's episode. Today, we are going to be talking about the 1953 Lovelorn Alien Gorillaborg attack movie, <laughs> Robot Monster, a film that absolutely proves beyond any doubt that a movie does not have to be good to be unforgettable. Robot Monster is about sixty-two minutes long. It was made on a microscopic budget. It makes very close to zero sense whatsoever. And ever since I first saw this movie, about twenty years ago now, I have probably thought of it at least once every week of my life.
1: It is a fascinating film. <laughs> and I, I want to throw out this is this is crazy. We were not aware of this fact um until later on in the day, but we both watched this on our each on our own. On January 31st. January 31st, as it turns out, is Gorilla Suit Day, like national or international. I'm not sure. Maybe there's a different uh, international Gorilla Suit Day. I, I, either way, uh, perfect that we should have watched this film because it does feature most of a gorilla suit uh, and, is a, and is ultimately, I think, a, a, an important page in the history of gorilla suits in cinema.
0: Uh, Who establishes that day? Is that like the national or the international gorilla suit consortium or something? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I can imagine their board meetings where everyone, of course, is wearing a gorilla costume.
0: Right. Are you ready to go ape for robot monster? I think you are because everybody is because everybody should be.
1: Yeah, it's. um... It's a 1953 film, and it's not just a bad B-movie. It's a, it's a legendary slice of American schlock cinema. The, the titular monster is essentially an icon of B-cinema. And I, I mean that in the fully religious sense of the word. Yeah. Uh, it is a, it's an image that may be venerated, that you may use in acts of de- devotion. Um, all of this is to say this is a film so slapped together and yet unique that it transcends the original picture. And and say what you will about the the Roman monster, the robot monster uh, of the movie. It's never boring uh, and it certainly leaves an impression.
0: Yes, robot monster is schlock, but it is not hack, which mm-hmm. I think is a very important distinction. One that this movie really forced me to meditate on. Uh, and if you'll allow me to elaborate, I would like to explain Let's have it. Okay, so schlock is a term we've used on the show before, but we've never really defined it. I guess it's, it's kind of hard to define. It's a slang term that uh, I just discovered is derived from a couple of Yiddish root words, apparently, that uh, it has to do with Yiddish words uh, meaning like a stroke or meaning a person uh, who is sort of uh, unkempt. But it's often used to describe a certain kind of B-movie. I think more broadly, you could use schlock to refer to cultural products in general. Like you could have a schlock comic book or maybe even a schlock novel or a schlock sculpture. Uh, And as I said, the definition is a little fuzzy, but you can kind of build a word cloud around it. Like, what are the associations? And in that word cloud, I would say you would find terms like cheap, messy, or clumsy weird and unsophisticated. So the exact opposite of a schlock movie or cultural product would be one that is expensive or high budget, very skillful, skillfully made, down to earth and refined or tasteful. Sounds dreadful. Meanwhile, hack in its usage for cultural products like movies uh, refers more to things that are executed with a certain baseline of professionalism or know-how, but are boring, unoriginal, uninspired, and forgettable. And the annals of uh, monster moviedom, especially of the 1950s, are full of both kinds of movies, and sometimes these things can overlap. But I think Robot Monster is special because It is all one and none of the other. This movie is a solid 10.0 on the Schlock scale and a 0.0 on the Hack scale, which makes it, in a strange way, kind of a masterpiece. I would put the Ed Wood movies, like Plan 9 from Outer Space, in the same category. It is a bumbling, awkward, nonsensical, almost improvisational hour of, of gorilla suit mayhem. <laughs> and it's never leaving my brain. The, this is the opposite of the boring, unoriginal, uninspired, forgettable schlock monster movies that, that came out around the same time. Uh, I feel like if one day they upload my consciousness into a computer and like 99% of my memories are lost in the transfer, Robot Monster is going to be one of the few that survives. Wherever I go, <laughs> Whatever happens, I am taking Roman with
1: me. <laughs>
0: yeah, now it, let me describe Roman for anyone who,
1: who still doesn't know what we're talking about here. Uh, you probably just need to be reminded uh, because, again, this is a famous figure from B movie history. It is essentially a gorilla like a gorilla costume and Mm. uh, and, kind of chunky looking and uh, and appropriately long arms. But instead of a gorilla's head, there's this kind of looks like a robot head kind of looks like a space helmet with very long, broad uh, uh, antennae on top. And there's this murky face plate uh, through which you can see something like a featureless face or some sort of amorphous mass. Or if you're looking at it in just the right way, you might Think you see something like a skull? We'll we'll get into the into the the different interpretations of it later. But this is the Roman. This is the robot monster, and it it's easy to just look at it. And I've seen you know I've heard lots of jokes about how oh this is really thrown together. Look at that. They just they couldn't afford a monster, so they got a gorilla suit and they just put a a robot um, head on top of it. Yes, yeah, (laughs) that's true. But it also. You just can't dismiss how well this works on screen. Like, this creature is interesting throughout the film. There are sometimes where there is, I think, a legitimate feeling of menace to the creature, and it works. There are plenty of uh, scenes in which it, it does feel goofy, but I don't know. It, uh, it works in a weird way.
0: Well, it's so odd. It's such a perverse combination, like the space helmet with the with the ghoul head inside, with the thick gorilla body, with like its shaggy butt. But also the way that the person has to walk inside the gorilla suit because like the, the suit is obviously much bigger than the person. So mm-hmm. when you see them walking, there it's this big, thick gorilla body taking these very. Dainty looking footsteps up the mountain yep. pathways. It's you've never seen anything like it. It's just perfect.
1: Yeah, and it and and I do also need to drive home. Like there are so many worse looking monsters in monster movie history. Like you can't even begin to list the monsters that look dumber or look more thrown together on the screen. And yet there is something unique about the way this came to get. Like there's just like you said. It's, there's something kind of perverse about it
0: you can't believe this is what the monster is. And it's on screen for most of the movie. They're oh, not yeah. like obscuring it behind fog or in the dark or something. It's just yeah. center frame. Half of the movie is the Roman doing zoom calls with another Roman mm-hmm. or just walking around yeah. out in the open broad daylight. Yeah. So uh, another thing that I started thinking about with this movie is, It's interesting how early it comes in the the 50s uh, space invasion movie arc. Uh, I would have assumed it came out, I don't know, if you'd asked me, I would have assumed uh, Robot Monster was 1957, you know, same year as uh, uh, like Attack of the Crab Monsters or something. Or was that 57 or 58? I don't know, somewhere in there. Uh, But instead, it was sort of an early runner in this arc. So to situate it within the history of sci-fi movies, alien invasion movies or alien attack movies... I think really hit their peak in the in the like mid to late 1950s and before that Uh, If you look at the sci-fi movies of the 30s and 40s, there are actually very few alien invasion films. Uh, There are a few, but not not many. The the most common theme of earlier science fiction films seems to be mad scientists. Like uh, many of the sci-fi movies from this period that we've covered on the show fit into that category. So we talked about Dr. X. That's the one with synthetic flesh, mad science movie. There's Dr. Cyclops. That's the guy who shrinks people and then uh, menaces them with various animals and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's Mad Love. That's about a hand transplant gone horribly wrong. There is Things to Come, which addresses all kinds of general scientific progress for good and for ill.
1: Yeah, yeah, we haven't actually covered things to come yet properly on Weird House Cinema, but I believe we talked about it in the Time After Time episode because it's the only H.G. Wells adaptation that Wells actually wrote a screenplay for
0: hmm. Uh and, and in fact, you can even think about the big universal monster movies that included science fiction elements from the 30s and 40s. You got Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man and so forth they are all mad scientist movies. Pretty much all of them involve a scientist breaking the boundaries of nature and ordinary life with some kind of experiment or maybe experimental procedure or surgery or something. Everything goes horribly wrong and it leads to murder. And those kind of movies don't go away. Like the mad science breaks nature theme continues in the fifties, but almost always with atomic themes now. So you, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody creates giant bugs with atomic radiation for obvious reasons. And there are a lot of hack movies in this category, but I think it's in the early 1950s that a new type of science fiction movie takes over. And that is the alien invasion or alien intervention film, Now, this type of story had already existed for many decades. uh, I'd say probably the first big alien invasion story was H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds in 1897.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the, uh, the big one.
0: And it, it, that novel is sort of the prototype for most of the alien invasion stories that followed, of which there were many in written fiction throughout the, the early 20th century. But it wasn't until the early 50s that this became such a common plot structure for sci-fi movies. And I think there are some big uh, early and influential examples. One would be The Thing from Another World, which we have an episode on. Uh, another would be The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, both of those movies from 1951. Though The Day the Earth Stood Still is more of an alien intervention than invasion. That's the one where the aliens shut up and they say, now you're you're doing war, you need to stop that, or we're going to end you all. There was, of course, a 1953 film adaptation of War of the Worlds, uh, the famous Mercury Theater radio broadcast. I wasn't sure when that was. I looked it up, uh, the Orson Welles one, and that was in 1938, but that was on the radio. Uh, and there would, of course, go on to be a million more Alien invasion movies throughout the decade, where aliens, you know, they come to either uh, one, destroy us and take our planet for themselves. To threaten to destroy us if we don't stop doing something, usually war or sometimes nuclear experiments or something like that. And then I'd say the third big category is they come here to infiltrate us and indoctrinate us in some way, maybe to serve them. So uh, examples there would be Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That was in 56. It Conquered the World on the uh, <laughs> lower budget side. Also 56. And... So the thing is, Robot Monster actually comes earlier in the decade than I would have guessed. 1953 is a little ahead of the curve here. And I wonder, Rob, where you think it fits into this broader arc. Uh, I think the basic idea is that the Romans want to destroy all humans and take Earth for themselves. But there's also a little bit of that Day the Earth Stood Still, Plan 9 from Outer Space kind of preachiness about how, like, oh, the Earthlings, you are stupid and you are destroying yourselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. This the 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 Roman, the Roman, if you will, here the the Roman civilization has essentially wiped out all of humanity, and then they explain that they have done this because we're basically we're getting too technologically advanced, uh, too much of a threat to them, and uh, and so we see category one and two there. Category three is not really in play, but it does have some connections to this film. Uh, as we'll discuss, because so much of this infiltration and indoctrination, uh, fiction of this era—the invasion of the body snatchers, it conquered the world. A lot of this lines up with uh, the uh, 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 the Hollywood blacklist, with uh, McCarthyism, and the, the the fear of communism uh, mm-hmm. in the United States,
0: which I do not detect really as a theme in in Robot Monster at all. But no, uh, no, I it- don't think so.
1: But it does have connections to several of the individuals involved in the making of the picture.
0: Yeah. Now,
1: before we get into the, the film a bit more here, I want to stress that this is a film that I've been seeing clips of since I was a child. I, I I had at least some version of It Came From Hollywood on a VHS tape, and I would see all these clips of monster movies, and they, of course, poke fun of it in that. I watched the season one MST3K episode before, probably more than once. But this was the first time that I'd really sat down and gave this film a proper viewing. And I have to say, it's kind of a challenge to make sense of everything. Kind Um, of. (laughs) It's like a puzzle box. Yes. Um, It's like you have to concentrate. It's like in Dungeons and Dragons, it's like some sort of concentration spell that if someone were to bump into you, you would just lose everything and the spell would collapse. Your understanding of the film will completely collapse if you're not paying attention to it. Um, at all times. And it it can also be difficult too cuz the tone of the movie will just turn on a dime. The dialogue is often absurd uh-huh. and the plot at once feels awesomely inspired by, you know, classic sci-fi pulp but also just goofy as all get out in other yes. places.
0: Yes. Uh, it's a wonderful combination of like the dialogue is for the most part hilarious but also mm-hmm it has a harder edge than a lot of the sci-fi movies of the time. Like just the, the kind of unforgivingness of the romance plan for earth and their cruelty is, is somewhat shocking.
1: Yeah. There's, there's something <laughs> gloriously miscalculated and miscalibrated about so much of the film. It's, yeah. it's a mess, but I was thinking it's a lovable mess. Like you oh, can't yes. feel, but help but feel protective of it.
0: You want to wrap a blanket around it and take it home with you.
1: Yes so um elevator pitch for this film uh, I just had to uh, in, invoke mad love and say Roman has conquered earth why can't he conquer love
0: that's it that's it he and he he basically asks that question at the end he's like why can't the Roman have what the human has love feelings emotions <laughs> yeah though this kind of like the, this this plot element
1: pokes its head what maybe Um, halfway through the film, maybe in the last third of the film, (laughs) and it kind of comes out of nowhere as a complication.
0: Yes, when it shows up, it is mighty unexpected and uh, and a, a very welcome turn because it happens right when the movie starts getting kind of repetitive with like these mm-hmm. calls back and forth with Roman where he just keeps threatening the humans. Uh, but then suddenly he looks on the view screen and he just sees Alice, the, the, the young lady in the movie, and he's like, oh, I am in love. What is this feeling for a Roman?
1: Yeah, because up to that point, they've been... Considering negotiating with with the Roman, uh-huh. they have uh, tried, and like the most they can get is like is he's like if you surrender, um, you'll get a quick death, and yeah. if you don't, unimaginable death. Like there's no, it doesn't seem to be a lot of wiggle room <laughs> with him until suddenly he becomes smitten with Alice, and he's like, wait, I should negotiate with her.
0: Yeah, he wants to do the face to face with her.
1: <laughs> All right, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go ahead and listen to some trailer audio here. With the swiftness of a deadly cosmic ray, the Earth is invaded by indestructible moon monsters. Their ghastly mission, death for all humans. <coughs> Astounding technical developments are being made to protect mankind. Robot Monster brings you an actual preview of the devastating forces of our future. Unsuspected revelations of incredible horrors that will terrify you with their brutal reality. There is no escape from me. Fool humans, there is no escape. right. Uh, Now, you you might be wondering at this point, where can you watch uh, Robot Monster? If you want to go ahead and pause the episode, watch the movie and come back, or you're inspired after you listen to the full episode to watch it again. Well, fortunately, it is widely available. Uh, We should note, however, that um, Bob Furmanek, Uh, A 3D film archivist has been heading up a restoration for a 3D Blu-ray release or re-release of Robot Monster, though as of this recording, I don't think they have a distributor or a date yet. I could be wrong on that, but I don't I don't think anything's lined up officially, but it's still pretty exciting for Roman fans out there. All that being said, the the available film quality as of this recording is still very watchable. So I don't think you should—you shouldn't put off watching Robot Monster. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? But um, once this gets released, I think this will be worth checking out because it'll be in 3D uh, for those of you with the ability to to power up the 3D. And it was originally a 3D picture.
0: Gorgeous. And this makes me— realize what the automatic billion bubble machine must have been in the movie for yes because otherwise i was unclear on why roman's cave his cave of slaughter has just a bubble machine in it but that's got to give some 3d texture right i guess so i mean otherwise you've got to wonder well maybe this technology in
1: earth's atmosphere just generates soap bubbles as a byproduct of its functionality, uh-huh. or bubbles are key. Like somehow it's those bubbles all contain nuggets of information then then float up through the atmosphere to some sort of a Roman satellite. No, it's probably just there because it looks neat.
0: Because otherwise it's just like, okay, so Roman just has a fad toy of the 1950s in his cave. Like, mm-hmm. does he also have a Mr. Potato Head or a Lincoln Logs or something? Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the the people involved here.
1: Starting at the top, we have Phil Tucker, the director of Robot Monster, who lived 1927 through 1985.
0: Now, I think right at the top, I'm going to have to say, I heard some rumors that uh, about this uh, about Phil Tucker that like he the the critics were savage to this movie and Phil Tucker was so upset uh, by that that it destroyed him. But it sounds like you found out maybe that's not really true. Correct. Yeah. Uh,
1: There's an excellent book out there titled, I Cannot, Yet I Must. That's a quote from the film. The Uh True Story of the Best Bad Monster Movie of All Time, Robot Monster, by Anders Runstad, which you can get as a digital book or or physical book. And it's a really great, um, well-cited, but very readable and entertaining exploration of this entire film, like what it comes out of. Who was involved in it? Its legacy has a lot of clips from uh, interviews with the various people involved and the bios of all the people involved. so if you leave this episode wanting a much deeper dive into uh, into into what robot monster is in the world it emerged from, I highly recommend that book. Uh, but yeah, uh, Runstad does a great job of, of sort of dispelling some of the, the urban legends surrounding this film because, yeah, for uh, I think I'd heard this as well, that like this idea that this was a film that the creator held up as a masterpiece and then was just broken when he, uh, he found out the critics didn't like it. So uh, yeah, I'm going to incorporate some of what Rundstad has to say uh, into this uh, brief bio of Tucker. Okay. So, American director, former Marine, former radio and TV guy who had two films out in 1953 Robot Monster, obviously, but also a film called Dance Hall Racket, a crime movie starring and written by legendary stand up comedian Lenny Bruce. What? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I did not know this existed. Wow. That's an
0: interesting crossover.
1: Yeah. Bruce's wife at the time, dancer Honey Harlow, also acted in it. I've not seen it. I have no reason to believe it's any good or even worth checking out unless you're, I guess, like a Lenny Bruce completist. But um, but yeah, it came out the same year. Robot Monster, on the other hand, of course, would come to define him. And uh, yeah, the, the stories you'll find out there are mixed, but it does seem like there were issues with the studio and He battled depression a bit over all of that, Uh, and also he didn't really work anywhere near mainstream Hollywood for a a long time. Uh, He did a string of low-budget L.A. burlesque comedies during the mid-1950s, followed by 1955's Broadway Jungle, about how slimy Hollywood uh, is from the viewpoint of a young director. Hmm. And then a TV movie, The Cape Canaveral Monsters in 1960, which is a bad alien invasion film, but Hmm. apparently without the lovable (laughs) um, aspects of Robot Monster. And that was his last directing credit. But he worked as a post-production manager on 1976's King Kong, 1977's Orca, and five episodes of 1978's The Next Step Beyond TV series. He also worked as an editor on several episodes of the Wonder Woman TV series and 1980's The Nude Bomb, which was a Maxwell Smart movie. Now, in that book, I cannot yet. I must, uh, by Runstad. Yeah, he 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 points out the yeah, the the urban legend of Tucker as a director who saw himself as a genius, uh, in this film as a masterwork. That that is for the most part false, and that more or less he was he was shooting for pure entertainment on this one. He did not think he was creating a masterpiece, <laughs> but um, mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, you know it's highly entertaining. Uh, also worth noting, public reception to the work uh, did not seem to be a big factor on his mental health, but he did seem to have some struggles. And later in life, he had some, I think, some uh, some memory-related struggles as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, if you want to go all in on this, uh, I highly recommend picking up that book. Uh, there's so many interesting tidbits from his life that rune uh, uh, explores one of which i found pretty interesting is that very late in the life and career of peter lorre tucker was involved in a 1961 pitch for the peter lorre playhouse <gasps> uh, this was going to be like a, a twilight zone or boris karloff's thriller style anthology show <sighs> and the host was going to be peter lorre
0: i can't believe that didn't happen sacrilege criminality that this did not happen
1: (laughs) i haven't seen any footage from it apparently they shot a pilot and Lori was the host of it and they had him like in a bowler hat at a desk in front of a spider web okay not to be confused with the radio drama of the 1940s titled mystery playhouse that peter Laurie hosted
0: Okay, I'm thinking of a crossover. I, I guess we need a time machine to make this happen, but crossover of the never realized Peter Laurie Playhouse with the Shelley Duval Fairy Tale Theater, <laughs> huh? How about it? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, Shelley Duval Fairy Tale Theater uh, just looks marvelous
1: every time I look at it again. I, I did not have the uh, the uh, the privilege of getting to watch this show when it ran, but I was talking to some friends, and they were like, "Oh yeah, it's uh, it's interesting." Anyway, so that's Tucker. Uh, But on to the writing credit for this picture, Wyatt Ordung, who lived 1922 through 2005, American actor and writer, born in Shanghai, China, and served in the U.S. Army during World War II. His father was a career U.S. military man and his mother a Russian immigrant. Uh, runonsted writes that Ordong, while not himself Asian, learned to speak Chinese uh, in China in addition to English and Russian, which was his his mother's native tongue, and he also had a broad appreciation for Asian culture from a young age so uh, he, he was influenced by that, and this shows up in some of his uh, his, his later screenplay work. Uh, but he was also influenced by his mother's interest in spiritualism and the occult. Oh, boy. So he was, he was known to be kind of a, an odd character in the, the sort of L.A. Hollywood scene of the day.
0: I don't detect any supernaturalism in Robot Monster. I would say Robot Monster is hard science fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, Ordung was, it said that there were stories about how he would, um, he was always discussing the paranormal, proclaiming uh, that he had a great fear of predatory or scavenging birds due to Ooh. a previous life experience. Whoa. Um, and anyway, after the war, he attended an acting school in LA on the GI Bill. Tucker met him on the set of some lost or unknown TV or explo- exploitation project that he was involved in. And, Perhaps because they both had a military background, uh, they kind of hit it off, and then basically, Tucker came to him and said, "Hey, I've got this sci-fi comedy I want to write about the last few people on earth. It's going to be called Googie Eyes, and I want you to write it."
0: <laughs> I'm glad they didn't call it Googie Eyes, yeah, yeah
1: <laughs> um, so so a lot of space in the in the in the Runestad book explores exactly how this seemed to come together. And it's kind of confusing because later interviews uh, with Ordong and Tucker both had kind of different stories about everything. And uh, and and he also spent some time talking about how weird it is that, okay, this idea that he wanted to make um, a comedy, it seems kind of early in the 50s monster movie craze for there to be an intentional parody. We talked about how kind of ahead of its time this is. So the idea that it would have been a comedy seems kind of strange
0: yeah uh, i gotta say while i love it and it is very funny uh and i don't want to be insulting but it it doesn't read to me like intentional comedy that's not how the movie comes across it it does have a i would say an uh a sense of intentional absurdity like that the uh the director and writer were being I don't know, uh, over the top in a playful way, but it doesn't strike me as like that every line that rings funny to us was necessarily supposed to be funny, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are yeah, there are definite lines in the film that. Are supposed to be funny, especially some of the lines said by the children. Yes, um, are, are are played for laughs. But yeah, it seems like whatever the original intention was, they ended up leaning more towards uh, drama, sci-fi, and, and a little bit of horror. Um, and uh, and yeah, this idea that he might have pitched it as a comedy, it might according to Ruenstadt, have had something to do with just his knowledge of their limitations, like knowing that they were going to have to make this film for basically nothing, and therefore they weren't going to be able to pull off uh, some sort of amazing special effect. It might end up being some sort of googly-eyed uh, like costume effect that they were going to
0: have to use on the monster. I will say the more that I think about it, I don't know, it's causing me to think of like what actually counts as intentional comedy. There's a lot of stuff in it that I don't know if it was written as a joke, but it comes across as funny and it doesn't feel like there was any attempt on the director's part to avoid that, if Mm. that makes sense. Like, the gorilla suit looks funny when Roman is walking through the desert and he's just showing you. Like, they're they're not, they didn't go like, oh, that looks funny, better cut that out and obscure it.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, or necessarily, that looks funny, let's have more of that, yeah. Yeah. Now, Runestad also reveals that Tucker, in later uh, interviews, claimed that Ordung only typed the script and that it was otherwise all his idea, all his his, his uh, material, mm. and that he repaid Ordung with like a writing credit and the prospect of more money. But it also seems like Tucker seems to have maybe bent the truth about a number of things and or had some uh, problems with recall later in life. Because uh, apparently, uh, like at one point, he claimed that he'd been successful writing science fiction under a pen name, but nobody knows what this pen name was. Uh, so, uh, for instance, it's, it's possible, according to Runstad that he might have just merely um, submitted some material and never got published or, or something. Because it seems strange that he would not have wanted his actual name out there on science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Runside says that, uh, okay, the two men disagreed on a lot of the history regarding this script, but three things seem to be agreeable in, in both of their accounts. One, the story was Tucker's and Tucker's alone. Uh, two, Tucker wanted a movie about life in the aftermath of nuclear devastation. And also three, both state that the finished film differed from the original script, though they both had different stories about who actually wrote the original script. Okay. And Rudenstadt also mentions that blacklisted comedy screenwriter Frederick I. Rinaldo may have contributed to the script as well. Um, I'm not sure what to really make of that, but that could, I guess, possibly um, account for some of these moments of comedy that occur. Maybe they're they're, uh, evidence of some sort of like punch up uh, edit that happened with the script or some earlier version of the script that had a lot of jokes in it. Anyway, Ordung's uh, previous acting experience included roles on TV's Dick Tracy and some other 50s TV shows, you know, small parts, as well as an uncredited role in the 1951 film Fixed Bayonets. He went on to play small roles in 1954's Dragon's Gold, 1954's Monster from the Ocean Floor and 1956's Walk on the Dark Street. He followed up his writing credit on Robot Monster with writing credits on 53's Combat Squad, 54's Target Earth, 56's Walk on the Dark Street, and 1959's First Man into Space. All right, let's get into the cast uh, a bit more here. Uh, we have a, only a handful of human survivors that, yes. are, that are left to contend with the Roman threat. Uh, the leading man is clearly
0: Uh, Roy, played by George Nader. This is, once again, your classic 50s movie, Rectangle. Yeah. He is there. He's got a jaw. He's got some hair. And he'll say the lines.
1: Yep, yep. Now, this is pretty early in Nader's career, uh, following a a fair amount of uncredited work and small parts. Uh, But he, he did a lot of TV and some films following this movie. Uh, this was his first starring role. Uh, some of his bigger subsequent pictures included Sins of Jezebel from 1953, Carnival Story from 54, The Million Eyes of
0: Sumaru* from 67 and 1973's Beyond
1: Atlantis.
0: George Nader has some excellent scenes where he has to uh, flirt with his love interest, Alice, uh, while they're like both soldering an electronics board and <laughs> it's all in voiceover. It's very funny. Yeah, it's an extended sequence. Yeah.
1: Now speaking of Alice, the love interest of both Roy and ultimately the Roman, this character is played by Claudia Barrett.
0: You know what? I love Claudia Barrett in Robot Monster. I'm not going to say like she shows great acting skill in this film, but man, she's given it her all and there there are parts where you just gotta hand it to her, like the the monologue about uh, after Roman expresses interest in her.
1: Yeah, yeah, where she's like, you know what? I'm going to date Roman. I know you don't want me to, but l- look where our other approaches have got us. Nowhere. I'm going to date the horrible monster, and we'll just see
0: what, what happens. Right. It is, for the sake of future humanity, I will be bride of Roman.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's definitely, like you say, the performance itself is not amazing, but it's, you can see the talent shining through the limitations of this role. So Barrett was uh, an actor of TV and screen uh, whose first movie appearance was 1949's White Heat, followed by a role in 1950's The Happy Years, which starred Dean Stockwell and Leo G. Carroll. Mm -hmm. Uh, She did a lot of TV and film work up through, I think, 1964, but White Heat and Robot Monster are probably the best remembered of the bunch.
0: She gives it her all. She holds nothing back. And she ha- also has some great scenes where she, like, has to emotionally turn on a dime because it's what the script demands. Yeah. So she goes from, like, weeping about the fact that, uh, that Roy is apparently dead to uh, just being like, oh, Roy, you're so bossy.
1: <laughs> all right. So we have our leading man, our leading lady. Uh, we have to have our older um, brains of the operation. This mm. is, of course, the professor played by John Mylong, who lived 1892 through 1975.
0: Once again, I'm not going to try to say John Mylong is, like, great in this role but i like john Mylong. i just get if this makes any sense like i get the vibe that i would like to hang out with him
1: (laughs) i do think he's one of the actors in the film that you can catch adding in free pathos for various scenes like the director didn't ask for it the script didn't demand it but by god he's a professional and he's going to make it as real as possible yeah yeah so uh, John Milong was born Adolf Heinrich Muntz, uh, an Austrian actor of Ukrainian Jewish heritage who, like many other actors and filmmakers and many that we've discussed on the show before from uh, pictures of this period, fled the rise of the Nazis in Europe. He became a U.S. citizen in 1948. Uh, he was a much bigger name actor during the 1920s uh, in Austria, but then found solid work in the States as well once he relocated. Uh, he acted in such films as 1954's Magnificent Obsession, 1943's For Whom the Bell Tolls, 1951's His Kind of Woman, and 1944's The Mask of Demetrius, which uh, has been on my radar before because it also features Peter Laurie. Ah. Oh. Uh, he was also in a 1962 underwater adventure film titled Mermaids of Tiburon. I
0: like what you say about him adding in free pathos. Because, yeah, <laughs> now that you mention that, I'm thinking back on lines where, you know, they, they didn't really ask him to, to, to struggle uh, while he's delivering, but he does. Yeah, yeah. And
1: I would say there's more free pathos from uh, Selena Royal, who plays Mother
0: in this. <laughs> That's her only name. She's Mother. Yeah. Professor, mother, Gilligan.
1: Yeah, I mean in the in the post apocalyptic hellscape of Earth you what else do you need? You're the only mother on the planet. You're just mother, I guess.
0: Yeah, there's there's a scene where uh, John Milong gets on a Zoom call with Roman, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Let me show you the members of my family. Surely you won't want to destroy them." And he puts up a picture of of uh, Selena Royal here, and he's like, "Look, how how could you want to hurt my wife here?" And Roman is like, "Oh, the mother brings more generations of the human race. She must be stopped." <laughs> Oh, and you're like, boo. You just want to boo Boo. Roman
1: most of the time. He's such a heel. So anyway, uh, Selena Royal here, uh, American actress of stage, radio, television, and film. She was daughter of a Broadway playwright, so unsurprisingly, she started out as a stage actor. She also did radio work and just a little bit of film work in the 30s. During the 40s, she became more active in film, mostly with maternal supporting roles, but some notable stuff. She played Joan of Arc's mother in Victor Fleming's 1948 Joan of Arc film, starring uh, Ingrid Bergman and um, Jose Ferrer.
0: Oh, I've never seen that one.
1: Yeah, I haven't either, but it's, you know, it's it's uh, it's one of the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, her screen and TV career, however, came to an end not long after Robot Monster with her last credits in the mid 50s. Uh, but then she became a writer, often covering cooking and culture in Guadalajara. Hmm. Uh, she apparently moved to Mexico with her husband after she became blacklisted in Hollywood during the McCarthy era. The FBI had her classified as a, quote unquote, concealed communist, even though it, from what I was reading, it seems like there was little to no evidence that she was anything of the sort. She was, I think, involved in some progressive and humanitarian causes, mm-hmm. and she remained involved in humanitarian work in Guadalajara until her death. Oh, yeah. I think that's
0: often how it went.
1: Yeah. Now, there are children in this as well. <laughs> there's Johnny and there's Carla. Uh, Johnny was played by Gregory Moffat, born 1943. Various 50s TV and film appearances uh, in his filmography, including one episode of The Adventures of Superman.
0: I got to say, I, I don't want to be mean to a child actor, but I, I have to say it. Johnny has bully vibes. Johnny seems <laughs> like the kid who would come on the playground and like, I don't know, tell you like he'd say like your dad's poor or something really vicious.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, Johnny's been through a lot. <laughs> so maybe we, we have to cut him a little bit of slack. But um, Carla is played by Pamela Paulson. This is her only actual film credit, I think. Um, as far as I know, she was not blacklisted for being a suspected communist.
0: <laughs> hey, hey, wait. OK, so we, we enjoy all the human actors here. But the real star of the show in my book is the voice of Roman.
1: Oh, OK. Yeah. The voice of Roman. Uh, that is John Brown who lived 1904 through 1957, is a British actor who appeared in such films as Alfred Hitchcock's 1951 movie Strangers on a Train. And he
0: was also a victim of the Hollywood
1: blacklist. Uh, So uh, his his credits uh, definitely uh, dry up and vanish in the uh, the mid 50s.
0: Well, that's a bummer because I love his monotone delivery. the The I cannot yet, I must. It's uh, it's it's what gives the movie the soul it has. Of course, in addition to the physical performance of Roman, which is also wonderful.
1: Oh yes, and this is George Barrows, who lived nineteen fourteen through nineteen ninety four. Um, so, this is our gorilla suit guy uh, I always love focusing on gorilla suit guys, uh, even though i don 't know that we 've watched a, a lot of like true gorilla movies but um uh, yeah, George Barrows certainly played a lot of gorillas in his time. He played some human roles as well. He had a kind of a you look up pictures of me he had kind of a meaty, beefy face that 's perfect for like that bit part cop or or uh, heavy that shows up in a in a picture but he became a yeah a leading gorilla man uh playing gorillas in such films as 1966's The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini 1967's Hillbillies in a Haunted House I think I've seen that one and 1954's Gorilla at
0: Large I've seen Ghost in the Invisible Bikini it's not what you would think it is yeah but there is a gorilla I think so yeah okay uh, he was also a TV
1: gorilla on such shows as The Adams Family, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Incredible Hulk, and the Night Gallery episode "Hatred Unto Death," which I do not remember, but definitely has a gorilla in it. Now, Runstad notes that Barrows was a serious gorilla man. I think it's easy to think about a gorilla suit man in a movie like this and think, like, all right, they found a guy, they paid him, he put on the gorilla suit. And they said, okay, let's shoot the picture. But Mm -hmm. no, 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 this is a guy who took his role very seriously. He made his own suit. He studied gorillas at the zoo and was said to be one of the last, like, real Hollywood gorilla men of his era, Uh, like someone who actually tried to act like a gorilla in the suit. (laughs) Now, that being said, as we've already pointed out, this is not a true gorilla role. Uh, because it's most of a gorilla costume, but then with the space helmet. And also the Roman is not moving around like a gorilla. He's moving more or less like a human. But like there are definite characteristics to the suit that are undeniable, like the uh, their arm extensions to simulate the proportions of an actual gorilla. It's made with yak hair, so it it, it looks like some sort of a beast, um, according to Runstad this reportedly cost him a good four hundred dollars to make, and even that the mask of his gorilla suit, which again is not in this picture, uh, was made using a plaster cast of his own face.
0: If you can show me a more lovingly made extraterrestrial ape Borg costume, I would like I would like to see it. <laughs>
1: Uh, He also points out that according to classic horror memorabilia collector Rob Burns, Barrows was second only to the legendary Charlie Gamora when it came to Gorilla Suit Men. Now, we haven't watched a proper Charlie Gamora gorilla picture, but I believe he came up in our episode on Dr. Cyclops because he did makeup on that picture. Uh, But he played a lot of gorillas in his time. Hmm. So he he took his job seriously, Barrows did, uh, but not so seriously that he wouldn't appear in a movie like this. He apparently had a very sort of blue-collar approach. Like, if you want a Gorilla Man, uh, there's a set cost, and, uh, and he'll show up, he'll be your Gorilla Man. Here's my price sheet, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
1: Start saving on wireless today at visible.com. Monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com. Finally, real quick, we keep mentioning that, of course, this is not a pure gorilla creature. It has the head of a spaceman, a space helmet. Uh, Runestead also explores this whole decision uh, quite a bit. Apparently, they knew a gorilla suit was doable, that this is something they could do. There was a guy they could hire, and they initially thought about making it alien via some horns or something, but then came back around to the space helmet idea. But at earlier points in the creation of the script, they were also talking about the idea of a robot gorilla, so there seems to be a lot of back and
0: forth here. Here, maybe we should address a question, a very important question. Is Roman a robot? Ah, oh, this is a tough one.
1: I've spent a lot of time in the last 24 hours thinking about this. And and on and off, I've thought about it over the years. Yeah, I was lying
0: awake all night. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just thinking about the body of Roman. Like, is that gorilla body his body? Is it some sort of an organic bio suit that this alien has grown and or or like strapped on, like some sort of a biomech to use. And then, of course, what's going on with the helmet, right? Is mm-hmm. that the, uh, what's that that murky face we see inside? Is that like some sort of featureless flesh m- mass? Um, are we just not supposed to see anything? Is it indeed a skull? Because the poster art for the for the film is pretty great as well. And it definitely goes the extra step of making the the head inside the space mask as a skull, which just adds to this ambiguity about what this creature really is. And apparently it's, it's unsure where this idea came from. It might have been the producer saying, hey, play up the skull thing. Or it might have been the poster artist deciding to embellish it. Uh, with this kind of skull motif as well.
0: I perceived the head inside the space helmet as more like a a sort of covered in a kind of amorphous putty, kind of like Mm -hmm. when a person's head becomes covered in the blob, in the blob. Hmm.
1: All right. All right. So it's possible that the Roman is just a blob piloting this weird flesh and metal suit. Maybe. I don't know. A furry creature who they've been wearing space helmets so long that they've evolved to have like a fleshless putty head. Or maybe they just have a fleshless head in general because they were some sort of scavenging creature in their evolutionary
0: history and therefore lost hair on their head. I don't know. You can go crazy thinking about this. This is probably an overly specific reference, but I just realized that Roman, in a way, especially the helmet reminds me of one of the final enemies that you face in the uh, the horror video game soma uh, which uh, one of the last ones is in this uh, base down at the bottom of the ocean it's the the one in like the diving suit that's got sort of the mm-hmm. the goop coming out of the pressure helmet
1: oh yeah yeah that's right they they definitely had a, a goop consistency to that uh, that game some sort of like healing goop that went crazy or something mm-hmm the fabulous thing about the Roman here is that all interpretations are valid. There's no there's no definitive answer, just maddening ambiguity. All right. Finally, a note on the music. Um, so I wouldn't say that the mu- that I love the music in this film. It's, it's interesting. It has some some neat piano, I guess, Some uh, perhaps overly whimsical uh, moments for the kids. And of course, some some pretty fabulous 1950s monster brass. You know, the monsters coming at you, you're going to hear that brass blaring
0: dun 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 there, Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. But here's the thing. The, the score for this film is by a pretty legendary individual, uh, Elmer Bernstein, uh, who lived 1922 through 2004. Uh, highly prolific, highly influential film composer and conductor. Something like 150 film scores during his career. And they cover a fair amount of range. So Robot Monster was, I think, only his fourth score. But he went on to compose the scores for such films as The Ten Commandments in 56, The Magnificent Seven, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Great Escape, and then on into the 70s and 80s, stuff like Animal House, Airplane, Heavy Metal, Trading Places, Ghostbusters, and then once you get into the 90s, Wild Wild West.
0: As in we're going straight to?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, He received an Academy Award for Thoroughly Modern Millie in 67. That was a musical romantic comedy that starred Julie Andrews, Mary Tyler Moore, and Carol Channing, directed by George Roy Hill. And um, Rundstedt notes that while he wasn't blacklisted, he did have leftist associations that were, quote, stalling his career Mm. at the time.
0: Okay, so at this point in the Robot Monster uh, uh, cast and crew, how many blacklisted or almost blacklisted figures are we at? it's several yeah
1: and it's possible there's sort of two interpretations of this apparently uh, according to Runstad. there's it's on one level people who were having trouble with the with the with being blacklisted where they were just having harder time getting work and so therefore they might have just been more available to a project of this caliber mm-hmm. but then it's also thought that the producer might have been sympathetic as well and that could have been a a potential end as well like sympathetic Mm -hmm. to these individuals who are suddenly having a a real hard time finding any work to sustain themselves Mm -hmm. all right the the, the final thing i want a rare location note on this film because this is another bronson canyon film wait
0: a minute did bronson canyon feature in uh another movie we did oh maybe it was attack of the crab monsters i'm thinking of well, it is definitely a
1: location that was used for Attack of the Crab Monsters, but it was also used in The Return from 1980, which we covered on the show. Ah, okay. But this is uh, basically, this is a section of Griffith Park in Los Angeles that has just been used tons of time, uh, including, but not limited to, White Zombie from 32, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 56. It Conquered the World from 56 as well. That pretty famously includes perhaps the exact same cave that we see. In this picture. Uh, oh, teenage- yeah,
0: that's where he learned only too late that man is a feeling creature the very one
1: um also teenage caveman from 58 uh, oh just a ton of films friday the 13th part six jason lives um star trek the undiscovered country army of darkness scorpion king hail caesar um that one probably is a nod to this location's importance in in hollywood but yeah if you're filming in in la and you need some sort of a deserty canyony uh cave sort of environment like this is where you went this is where you filmed your scenes
0: That makes a lot of sense because there are scenes at the very beginning where it looks like it's about two children playing unsupervised in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, you ready to talk plot? Yes, 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 let's do it. Wait, wait, hold on. Before we get into the plot, we have to talk about the credit sequence because we just <laughs> did a series of core episodes about uh, the idea of horror vacui, which in art is often used to describe an impulse to overly clutter your design, to fill it in with too much detail, not leave enough blank space. And ooh, the, the credit sequence here, it it's got a background. So like the credits are appearing as text on a background that's a bunch of it looks like comic book covers that themselves have text on them. And it's a nightmare.
1: Yeah. Now, I guess at one level, we need to remind ourselves this was a 3D picture. So I'm guessing these, these letters were jumping out at us uh,
0: off the screen. But still, yes, very busy looking. Also, when they showed the title, I don't know if this is something about the transfer to home video, but when they showed the title of the movie, Robot Monster, is not even remotely centered in frame. I'd say it's a good 30% <laughs> off.
1: Oh, yeah, I hadn't noticed that. But I noticed that, like, you, you basically have this pile of comic books in the background, like old-timey sci-fi comic books. And the, the, the wording on the comic book covers actually, like, kind of messes with the way you're perceiving the names of the characters because they start doing stuff like starring George Nader as Roy. But it looks like uh, starring George Nader as Fee-Roy because there's a, it's, it's uh, superimposed over the word fear on one of these comic books.
0: Yeah, so it's F E A and then the name, Roy. So it's Fee Roy. Uh, we get to see Claudia Barrett as Fee Alice. And <laughs> it, oh, and when they introduce these actors, they show like they, they give you a face. So they show you Roy, and he's that rectangle. He looks like he's sort of looking disapprovingly at some neighbors' tacky Christmas decorations. Mm hmm. But when you get to Claudia Barrett, ooh, she has this dangerous smirk. She looks like she is in possession of your most terrible secret, and she's just watching you beg her not to tell everyone. It's great. <laughs> but anyway, that's Fee Alice. We get we get Fee Mother uh, Selena. Oh, were we calling her Royal or Re- Royale earlier? I th- I thought it was Royal, but uh, it could okay. be Royale. Yes, I'm not. W- whichever it is, she's Fee Mother. Yeah. Um. Uh. This is this is weird.
1: I didn't notice that till just now as we were going through the notes. But yeah, she's Selena Royal R O Y L E, um, or at least that's the way I was pronouncing it in my head. But her name in the opening credits is Selena Royale R O Y A L E.
0: So um, they misspelled it.
1: They misspelled it. Um. Yeah. Unless. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, maybe this was an this may have been another name she used uh, as well. I mean, to, I'll give it the benefit of a doubt and say maybe she was sometimes credited as this. But uh, it's not uncommon for pictures of this caliber to sometimes use uh, somebody's name with a
0: inventive spelling. It's true. And I love how uh, the credit sequence also gives a credit for the automatic billion bubble machine. Oh, yeah. Well, you got to give credit where credit's due. It's an amazing bubble machine. So the film opens, the action opens, uh, on a bloodthirsty alien cyborg clambering over a hilltop in the desert. He's wearing a bubble-top helmet affixed with atmosphere hoses, and he's got a pistol-grip death ray, and he's got that raised up in one hand. And, wait a minute, that is not an alien, it is just a child wearing a suit. He's playing with toys, and he's pointing the ray gun at his sister. And as, as he comes up, there is Nana Nana Boo Boo music playing. It's the same song that plays in uh in the mexican santa claus when the when pitch the demon is doing his antics yeah it's an annoying song and thank
1: god most of the score for this film does not revolve around this little ditty here yeah uh but so what are the what are the opening lines we get oh yeah so carla asked her brother she says am i dead and johnny says you're disintegrated
0: I love how morbid Johnny is. Mm-hmm. Uh well oh, but anyway she goes, "Good, does that mean we can play house now? You promised." Uh but Johnny only wants to play house of alien slaughter. Mm-hmm. Uh and so he's he's blowing bubbles and they they go around the corner. Uh again, it looks like they're in the middle of the desert, but they end up finding a couple of adults, these two men who are standing in a cave under these desert cliffs. And the kids come up to them and Johnny says, you must die. And the professor, uh, the, the older guy, there's an older guy, younger guy, the younger guy is Roy. The older guy is the professor and the professor says, wouldn't it be nicer if we could live in peace with each other? Uh, and, uh, so Johnny kind of, he seems disappointed by this, but he accepts, but he says he still has to know who they are and what they're doing there. And a bizarre conversation follows. So, The older man in the cave, this is John Mylong as the professor, he has an Austrian accent, and he sits the boy on his lap, and he explains that he and Roy are archaeologists. And he says they try to find out what men were like back before they could read or write. He says, quote, the only way to pass on what they knew were through pictures like this one. And I guess they're referring to cave paintings, but you can't really see any in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: there's just some looks like they painted some of the rocks in there.
0: Right. And so Roy says, uh, Roy's the younger guy, he's in a leather jacket, and he says, our job is to chip it out carefully and take it to a museum. And then Johnny says, gee, are you scientists? And uh, Roy's like, even better than being cowboys, eh, professor? Uh, But so Johnny asks if the cave painting was a spaceman. And the professor says, as far as we know, there were no spacemen at those times and no robots either. (laughs) So they're having fun, but then the fun's over. Here comes Johnny's family. Johnny says, here come my mother and my sister. And then he turns to Roy and he says, I bet you'd like her, I guess, referring to his older sister, Alice, who uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Alice, uh, she comes up and Roy says, no doubt. Uh, So Johnny is immediately trying to set his older sister up with Roy, the archaeologist. Uh, But the situation is that Johnny and Carla have to go back and take a nap after lunch because their family is out here on a picnic. And then we see where they have been set up for a picnic. And I laughed out loud when I saw this. They've got a blanket spread out on the like surrounded by jagged rocks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And Johnny says, if we ever get a new dad, I hope he's a big scientist that makes rocket ships and things like that. Uh, and then they, I guess they settle down for a nap, which literally, mean they, they just lay down on the ground around this blanket surrounded by jagged rocks.
1: And at this point in the film, you think, all right, I'm following this. I know what's going on. And then, woo, this film hits you with this
0: first major swerve. They're like, yes, the action is too clear. Let's let's start getting confusing. So Johnny wakes up from the nap. He jogs off. He returns to the cave, I guess, to hang out with his archaeologist buddies. But they're not there. And he is knocked over by the shaking of the earth. And then we get a cataclysm montage. We see lightning. We see balls of fire in the sky burning <laughs> the atmosphere away. Then we see lizards with fins and other things glued to them fighting uh, to... To be clear, I'm not positive, but it looks like some animals may have been harmed in the making of this film. Well, uh, I
1: think these these films are this is this is footage from previous films. There are a couple oh, of a okay. couple of these. are So I think they're just reusing something from other films. I forget which ones, but they're, they're cited in like Michael Weldon's book.
0: Okay. Well, anyway, there's something that looks like two lizards fighting. Uh, I can't tell if they're alive or if they're like stuffed lizards or whatever, but they've got stuff taped to them to make them look like dinosaurs. Like one has a Dimetrodon-style fin back. Yeah. Why are there dinosaurs fighting? I still don't know, and I saw the (laughs) whole movie. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
0: All right, so Johnny, after that, wakes up. uh, I don't know if he was supposed to have witnessed the dinosaurs fighting or something. He doesn't comment on it. He wakes up seemingly from his fall after the earth shirk, and he's still in front of the cave. But now things are a little different. We've got a side table with some random technology on it. There's like a reel-to-reel player and something with some antennae coming up off of it. And then a bubble machine, just blowing bubbles. Mm -hmm. Also, Johnny is dressed differently. Did you notice this? He's wearing shorts now.
1: I did not notice the change
0: in pants. So Johnny comes to, he looks around, then he hides behind a rock, and here comes our Roman reveal. Out of the cave comes this thick, awesome, uh, hulking gorilla suit man with with a space helmet on, and he comes out, he looks around, and before we really even get a chance to take this in, he's getting onto the view screen to make a call. So this will be our first view screen interface scene, and there are tons of them in the movie. Basically, they are Zoom calls in a bathroom mirror uh, Mm -hmm. between Roman and his boss, who is referred to as the Great One or Great Guidance or Guidance Roman. And they they will they will recur throughout the movie. About half of the runtime is Roman getting chewed out by his boss for failing to exterminate all of the humans.
1: Yeah. And clearly these scenes were, you know, they were filmed without the voiceover. So there's a lot of gesticulating of gorilla suits with (laughs) with space helmets on.
0: Shaking of hands with fingers outstretched. But it's obvious that a hand is not in that hand part of the suit.
1: Yeah, yeah, because they're, again, they're extended to give the the original
0: costume gorilla-like proportions. So just rubber fingers waggling as the hand shakes. (laughs) Uh, But the view screen comes on, we see some chicken nuggets flying around through space, I think they're supposed to be asteroids, and then here comes a guy in the exact same costume as Roman on the other side, so it's just Roman talking to Roman, and it is hard to communicate without just playing back a sample how funny the cadence of the Roman on Roman dialogue is. <laughs> so like Roman checks in, he says extension Roman X J two reporting to guidance Roman. I salute you. And the other guy, you know, you're late 14 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, they're just always, um, I, I was trying to think of how to describe this and, and, I did come up with a comparison. They have a similar kind of loud, stabby, but monotonous line delivery to the Coneheads.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I guess guess we can sort of, I mean, uh, undoubtedly, um, Dan Aykroyd was familiar with Robot Monster. So maybe it was a direct reference there.
0: So we get some backstory about what's going on here. We discover that the Guidance Roman, uh, he he divulges that no life has been discovered on other planets. I guess they were looking. So he says, Earth is their only rival. And then Roman says, the human knew of atomic energy, but had not mastered the cosmic ray. So Roman explains that he used something called the calcinator ray to attack Earth. And then the, the Earth nations thought the attack came from other Earth nations, so they retaliated against each other and they all destroyed each other with nuclear weapons. And then Roman says after that, they tried to band together against him. He says, quote, "...their resistance pattern showed some intelligence, but all are gone now." So at this point, I was Rachel and I were watching this and we were like, what? what? How much time has elapsed here?" It just looks like Johnny falls over, then he gets up, and now here's Roman talking about what sounds like some you know would have taken months of intervening time.
1: Yeah, I, I had to just quickly abandon the earlier portion of the film and be like, "This is the reality we're in now. I can't. I've yeah. got enough to contend with. I can't try and figure out how the first part factors into where we are now, but." Yeah, because suddenly we are in this post-apocalyptic hellscape, and it's uh, this is something that Rundstad discusses a little bit. Like this is really early for. I mean, this isn't the first time that, uh, in the wake of uh, the, the close of World War II, that you had fiction or, or film dealing with like a, a post-apocalyptic setting. But it's pretty early. Like this is this is not long after uh, the, the first use of, of nuclear weaponry on Earth.
0: Yeah, and already at this point in the movie, all the Earthlings are gone, as far as we know, except for Johnny.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we get it. We hear from the Roman himself, who's like, there are eight survivors. Well, there's some disagreement on how many survivors, but it seems to yes. be agreed upon that we're we're not talking about more than eight humans.
0: Yeah. First Roman says that he's eliminated all the humans, and then the guidance Roman says, I want facts, not words. <laughs>
1: Yeah, they're really, they're just, they're mean-spirited and severe on everything. Like, at this point, the human species is effectively extinct. I mean, there's no coming
0: back from this, but
1: they're like, no, we must destroy them
0: all. Right. Uh, Roman tries to defend himself. He's like, my scans indicate no life for- life forms above Lepidoptera level exist. And I was like, what, Lepidoptera? <laughs> That's moths and butterflies? <laughs> what?
1: Oh man, we don't. See, I don't remember seeing a moth or a butterfly in the film, though. It's other regions, I guess.
0: I don't know how he's ranking them though. What is above and below Lepidoptera? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the boss Roman is like, uh, okay, find and destroy the eight remaining humans and then report back. So we see. Roman, uh, you know, he he he's going to get to work. And so he sets his bubble machine going full blast. And then Johnny runs off to somewhere to somewhere back home, presumably to his family. And then just more commence intense brain pain. (laughs) Rob, can you try to describe what a baffling puzzle box begins to emerge in the next scene about like what? What the time frame of the movie is? What are the family relationships? The living arrangements? Like, yeah, because they're just living in straight ruins here, just like direct
1: sunlight ruins. There are no roofs uh, that I remember seeing, and everything's protected by this kind of electromagnetic f- field or slash vents that the professor has installed. And they're just clearly really scraping by, and. Several times in the film, the performances really speak to this. Like, there's supposed to be a feeling of of desperation here, that this is humanity in its final days for real.
0: But there's also stuff that doesn't comport with that at all. Like like Roy and Alice having this uh, laugh-inducing romance. Uh, Oh, yes. but, But the other thing about the family relationships. So, the mother and the professor are now ma and pa. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we're to understand that such time has passed that the two archaeologists have been incorporated into Johnny and Carla's family. So mother and the professor are now married, and now the professor is just Johnny's paw. I guess. <laughs> yeah, okay. I yeah. think, yeah, that's what... But they don't explain that any time has passed. It's just like that now. So there's that. But then also... We, we are told about all of this technology expertise. Like, we find out from the professor that uh, that they think the Roman hasn't been able to locate them because the professor and Alice were able to rig up these deflector beams that are like these electrical wires that surround their shelter, which protect them from Roman's scanning rays. Mm-hmm. And wasn't the professor an archaeologist? Yeah, that's what we were told earlier. Um, <laughs> but he's also apparently a, like a nuclear engineer or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe he's just a quick study and he, he got some books uh, and <laughs> he
0: had some time to, to bone up on everything in the days immediately following the apocalypse. So this is the the thing you were calling a puzzle box. It's just like so much is coming out so fast and it's like not what it was in the scene just before with no explanation for why it's different.
1: Yeah. And you just have to like moment to moment in this film, accept the change <laughs> and roll with it or to whatever degree is possible, try and stitch it together in your mind. So, again, you either have to be all in on following the the meandering plot of this film, or you have to just shut off half your brain and take it at like drive in value.
0: Yeah. So Johnny reports to his family, the proximity of Roman. They're like, Oh, he's just over in the cave. He's really close to our house. And that's obviously distressing to everyone. And Johnny suggests, let's kill him. Let's kill Roman. (laughs) And the professor (laughs) says, we can't do that. He's impervious to our weapons. And then Alice says, unless we find his weak spot. Good thinking. (laughs) They've never had this conversation before. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Apparently they've been part of a like resistance on earth that was fighting against Roman and they're all but defeated. They're the only ones left. And now Alice has the idea. What if we try to find his weak spot?
1: We eventually learn that, oh, it's not that fence that, that they've rigged up that is protecting them. It's because the professor developed some sort of antibiotic to keep them all uh, from catching any diseases. And that is protecting them from the Roman super weapons.
0: Yes. The professor has developed an antibiotic serum. Uh, I think the professor and Roy together. So two archaeologists can <laughs> do bioengineering. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they get antibiotic serum that uh, protects them against all diseases. Johnny explains that they can take capsules that have, quote, a lot of bad bugs in them, and then they never get sick. So there you go. But it just happens to turn out that this serum, for some reason, protects them against romance scanning devices and weapons.
1: Yeah. And so they eventually put this together. And then we get this wonderful setup uh, that that they roll out here in the film that that I I really loved and and I got really invested in for the, the brief period that it was explored in the movie. They shared that there is a battalion of human space marines on an orbiting spaceship that survived the all out attack on earth and the you know the subsequent wars uh we later find out that the romans basically left them alone because they were like well this could be useful when we come to colonize the planet we'll just leave that up there they're not doing any harm for some reason they're uh, they're forgiving of this but they can't let eight remaining humans die out on earth uh whatever fair enough but uh once our human survivors realize that it's the serum that's protecting them they're like well let's 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 get a let's get one of these rocket ships that's still laying around. Let's let's have a couple of folks hop on a V two with this serum, take it up to the space marines. Then they'll be protected, and bam, we can begin this rebellion in earnest. Okay, good plan, right? Yeah, sounds like that. Let's do that for the next half of this film. But then, oh, we get a call from the Roman Overlord here, the Viceroy of Earth, and he's like, "I figured out your plot. Watch what I'm about to do." What does he do? He of course blows up the V two rocket ship on its way to the to the satellite, and we see what is supposed to be like the space station satellite spinning out of control and becoming devastated, and and it's devastated as well, and so so he's just like, "Ah, oh, your your brilliant plan is not." nothing and everybody's really shaken up about it and i i was a little shaken up too again trying to become as invested as possible in robot monster Uh and i was like oh my god i really thought they had a they had a shot there this seemed like a really good plan and roman has just completely destroyed all their hope and they seem utterly hopeless now
0: it's a tragic setback but during the scene where we watch the space platform being destroyed you can see somebody with a gloved hand holding up the model as they move it around (laughs) Oh, man! Oh, I love it. Uh, But wait, Rob, you actually skipped ahead a little bit because there are a lot of Zoom calls in this movie. Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) Roman calls them once before that call where he shows them that he's blowing up the space station. Uh, He first calls the family on their view screen, which appears to be the only piece of furniture in their home, which, as you said, is otherwise just a three wall concrete bunker with no roof exposed to Mm -hmm. the desert sun. And Roman says, humans, listen to me. Due to an error in calculation, there are still a few of you left. (laughs) Uh, And so he's explaining how he's going to destroy them and he wants them to come surrender themselves to him and he'll promise them a quick, painless death. But during this conversation, there is a bizarre side conversation just like while they're still on the phone with Roman. Roman's just standing there on the Zoom screen (laughs) and they start talking about how because of the number of humans left alive that Roman cites, they assume Roy must be dead because he's not there with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the professor is like, I never would have invented the serum without him. So I guess he used his archaeology to help invent the serum and uh, and then Alice is like, oh he you know we always struggled because he would never admit I was good in my field, which is apparently <laughs> like electrical engineering mm-hmm. um, but uh, but he you know now she kind of misses him. But in the middle of that, Roman interrupts them to say, Do you wonder what happened to all your fellows? He's talking about other humans. My calcinator beam. And then he shows stock footage of bombs. Uh, and then he tells them their deaths will be indescribable and he logs off. And after that, there's a great conversation where the mother is like, Well, maybe we should try to negotiate with Roman. <laughs> mm hmm. But the professor says uh, if he wants us, he should calculate us. Rob, what do you make of the fact that the word calculate is used roughly 500 times in this movie?
1: (laughs) I have no idea. Uh, I mean, it's used... Correctly in some places, but here I'm not sure what the professor is saying. Like, like he should negotiate with us. Uh, well, yes, well, negotiation seems like the way to go.
0: He should calculate us. Like what? Count I think, us. I think that means find us in this context. Hmm. It, it it almost is used to refer to any kind of cognitive labor or activity of any kind. So they use calculate to mean like think. And they use calculate later, I think, to mean outsmart. So mm-hmm. it's, and we're, we're getting a very broad uh, usage of calculate, not, not usually in the way you would see it. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential
1: All right, but let's check back in with Roy. What's Roy been up to?
0: Oh, Roy, turns out he's spying on Roman. So you go back to Roman's cave, and Roy is behind a rock watching Roman do his thing. And Roy, he's got a T-shirt on, a tucked-in T-shirt with a couple of big holes ripped in it, one big nipple hole, one shoulder hole. And he's watching Roman and his boss do another Zoom call. And it's more of the same stuff that like the boss is chewing Roman out. Uh, Roman says, I need guidance, great one. For the first time in my life, I am not sure. And the great one says, you sound like a human, not a Roman. (laughs) And uh, so Roy, he watches all this and he he comes back to the family alive and well. Uh, They're happy to see him and he spills the beans about Roman. He's like, Roman does not know where we are. So this is the part where, as you were talking about, they plan to coordinate with the space platform but in order to do so they have to rewire their view screen the zoom call thing to contact the space platform and so Alice is an expert at this but she needs Roy to be her assistant and this is fraught this is tricky because whenever Roy needs to be her assistant with electronics he gets bossy he tries to be the boss and she tells him this and then he's like I'm bossy and then this line throws for a loop he says you're so bossy you ought to be milked before you Come oh. home at night. Yeah, um, I, I, what? Did not, I did not understand that. Yeah. So we stopped and looked this up. Apparently, some people call their cows or call their lead cow bossy. Hmm.
1: hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Who? Uh, hmm.
0: That's perplexing. <laughs> whatever. I'm not familiar with this. Whatever. But uh, okay. But, hey, yeah. Farmers in the audience. <laughs> There were a lot of
1: Westerns at this time, so maybe this is something you would know if you watched a lot of Westerns, which were extremely popular in the the 40s and 50s.
0: Right. So Roy and Alice, they get together for some sassy, flirty electronics repair montages where we're just watching like an electronics board and some hands doing things on it, and they're doing voiceover like, uh, ooh, solder my vacuum tube. You're too beautiful to be so smart.
1: One wonders if this... This section was about stretching out the the
0: runtime of the film to over an hour. Yeah. But then finally, they get it working. they They get tuned in. But unfortunately, this is the scene you were talking about. The Roman attack on the rocket ship, killing the other humans. And Roman shows them the attack on their view screen. And Roman ends it by saying, calculate your chances. Negative, negative, negative. Absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, And then he says again that he's like several times now threatened that he will destroy them imminently. He says it again. He's like, in one hour, I will destroy you all. And the kid, Carla, says, Mommy, why doesn't he like people? (laughs) Uh, Then we get uh, let's see. We get more flirty electronics work after this because Alice and Roy have to rewire the view screen again so they can call Roman directly. Mm hmm. This is the scene where the professor is like, okay, let me show you my family, Roman. How could you want to destroy them? And then Roman like gives a reason for destroying each family member. They show mother, and he's like, the mother is the bringer of human life. And then they show uh, the child, Carla, and he's like, I am programmed to have no emotions. And then they show uh, Johnny, the boy, and Johnny sticks out his tongue, and Roman just says, the boy is impertinent. (laughs) fair fair yeah he's kind of a bart simpson this this kid but this scene is a turning point in the movie because when the professor shows roman alice something clicks for roman roman's hard exterior shell breaks and something kind of melts inside he he sees alice and he's like hubba hubba he says there is something i do not understand i want to see the girl alice again and it's love at first sight. He, he's immediately saying, like, oh, well, wait a minute. Actually, I don't have to destroy you. Uh, let me negotiate with the girl. Now, to be clear, Alice
1: is, is very cute. But is she really cute to an alien robot <laughs> cyborg gorilla man? Um, I, I'm just I'm not sure about that. And also, I have to question the, the Roman Viceroy here. Like, where does he think this relationship could possibly go? Maybe he's not thinking long term.
0: Yeah, but the weird thing is, like, she's weirdly all for it. She's, <laughs> the, Carla says, is Alice going to go on a date with Roman? And Alice says, yeah, I must go. She gives this passionate monologue about how, like, humans crawled up from the slime of the ocean and, and evolved to tame the atom. And it cannot end just because she did not want to become bride of Roman. So she, she's gonna she's going to do it.
1: I love this because this this is a moment in the film that feels very unexpected. Because any other film that had this kind of plot uh, would not go in this direction. It would just be like, "Oh, save me from the Roman! I do not want to marry the Roman!" But no, she it goes. This movie goes in the opposite direction, and it and it makes it interesting.
0: However, the fam the rest of the family do not agree, and they end up restraining Alice <laughs> to prevent her from going to this uh, this Roman rendezvous. Uh, But meanwhile, little Johnny runs off to meet Roman instead. Uh, And here's where we get the first of lots of scenes of Roman walking up a hill. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know why they chose to include this much footage if like they were embracing how funny it looked or it's hard for me to believe they watched it and did not think it was funny. So this is one of those things that makes me think, well, yeah, maybe they were sort of leaning into the absurd comic aspect of this uh, but there's a lot of it, and we could not stop laughing.
1: Yeah, th- again, anytime Roman is on the screen, you're entertained. <laughs> there's not a dull moment as long as you can see. There's not a dull moment in the movie. But he is—he's just such an interesting
0: specimen to look at. So Johnny and Roman meet up, and Johnny's like, hey, you know, what do you have against us? And Roman explains, well, you are human, and your people were getting too intelligent. We could not wait until you were strong enough to attack us. We had to attack you first. And uh, then there's an amazing exchange. Johnny says, I think you're just a big bully, picking on those smaller than you are. And Roman says, now I will kill you. (laughs) Uh, So he tries to use the the calcinator death ray, but it doesn't work. Johnny's immune. But this encounter uh, lets slip the uh, the fact about the serum that keeps them safe from Roman. And Roman figures out that he can now calculate how to destroy them. Oh, and meanwhile, in the same part, Roman's wandering around and uh, Alice and Roy are off in the 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 desert together and they're hiding from Roman and they like lay down on a bunch of cactuses and start kissing and then uh, they they run home after this and say that they want to get married and they have a wedding ceremony. <laughs>
1: Oh, my God. So this this is probably the dumbest part of a very dumb film. Um, yeah. I loved every moment of it because, OK, first of all, you mentioned how Roy came back from spying on Roman or whatever, and his shirt was torn. It yeah. quickly became obvious that this is the only like medium adult T-shirt left on the planet uh-huh. because he doesn't get a new one. He just sticks with this ragged old thing. Um a couple of times during the making out and the wooing of Alice, um, that shirt comes all the way off. And then when they get married, and granted, it's not a fancy ceremony. It's kind of thrown together last minute. There aren't a lot of people to invite to it because most of the world is dead and it's a dead world. Uh, but <laughs> Roy is married shirtless. This is oh, a shirtless yeah. wedding. And I had to, I had actually did a, a quick uh, searching around. I'm like, is this a thing? Has even the most, um, Ridiculous of celebrities had a wedding ceremony in which they are completely shirtless, and I could find no evidence that this is the case. I think you have had some examples of, of you know, particularly, you know, particularly uh, buff dudes maybe getting married with just a jacket over their buffness. Uh, but I think Roy, I, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, listeners, but I think Roy was uh, maybe in a in a category all his own here, just the
0: shirtless wedding to Alice when they say they're getting married and they ask the professor to perform the ceremony, the mm-hmm. professor is like, it will be the biggest social event of the year. <laughs> <laughs> and depending on how much time has passed, I mean, there's a very good case to be made for that. So they get married and it's just, well, it's, it's heartwarming. Uh, yeah. But he then, does put the shirt back on though. He, oh, <laughs> I, he, guess. I forgot about that. Yeah. He's like, all right, all
1: right, You know, I, I didn't want to wear this awful thing to the wedding, but I will put it back on now.
0: Now, after this, we get to the part where I started to figure out spoiler, spoiler for the ending of the film. Uh I started to realize, oh, this is gonna all be a dream because okay. romance starts killing people. It starts killing the characters, including like the children. Oh yeah. And he kills mo- the little girl. Yeah, he strangles the little girl. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then I realized oh oh They would not release this movie if that actually just happened. Oh, I did did not have that
1: moment of clarity. I was like, well, she's dead now. That's just how totally inconsistent this movie is.
0: Yeah, he starts killing all the human characters, and I think he basically kills all of them. Uh, He kills Roy. Uh, Does he kill both the kids? Oh, I
1: I will say he does carry Alice around. Yes. Um, As depicted on the poster, finally, a movie... Where the poster is true to life, the monster just carries the hell out of a woman, just carries her around. We see lots of shots of Roman carrying Alice's
0: uh, struggling body uh, across the countryside here. She's just kind of kicking her feet back and forth while he's carrying her around. She doesn't actually... It doesn't look like she's really trying to sell being distressed in these scenes. She's just She just looks like this is funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that uh, he couldn't really see out of that costume all that well. Yeah. So these scenes where he's wa- – some of those scenes you can kind of – you kind of get the sense that he's walking gingerly with the kind of gorilla arms outstretched in case he falls. So perhaps that was part of it here. Don't kick too much or there's going to be a tumble.
0: But ultimately, we get, some, we get some real conflict in the Roman character because he kidnaps Alice. He takes her back to his cave. Um, I think the professor and mother are trying to come rescue her, but he calls into his boss and his boss is like, OK, you've got you to destroy all the humans. And he's, and he's like, no, I cannot destroy this human because I love her. And his boss is really mad at him. He says, you are not like a Roman. You are like a human. Destroy them all or I will destroy you. And so Roman, he gets his final soliloquy. He says, I cannot, yet I must. Uh, oh, actually, I should read this quote directly. Yes. He says, I cannot, yet I must. How do you calculate that? At what point on the graph do must and cannot meet? Yet I must, but I cannot. Pure Shakespeare right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so we get that conflict. He he doesn't want. He can't k- bring himself to kill Alice. So then the the great guidance says, uh, "You wish to be a human. Good. You can die like a human." And then he kills. He like sends a cosmic ray to kill, uh, to kill the Roman. And then he again, he basically he sends dinosaurs to fight again to do the same stock footage they did earlier.
1: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> again, it gets very confusing.
0: And that's going to destroy the world until Johnny wakes up. Johnny wakes up from his dream. And of course it was all a dream. Of course it was. Uh. The the moment Roman started killing the children, I knew that this was going to happen
1: i I did not I found it really gut punchy when they did the whole it was all a dream thing, and again I'd seen this movie before, but I guess I forgot about that. maybe my mind rejected it, and I reject it now as well because <laughs> my my I had to do so so many mental gymnastics to try and make sense of the plot and and not even able to stitch everything together and then when you get to that, oh, but it was all a dream, like what am I supposed to do with that right I mean then it, it nothing matters because then it was just it was just all the, the dreams of a young child, and and that's not interesting. What's what's that supposed to mean?
0: Agree, Phil Tucker. That was cheap. That was that was that was a fake out. Uh, you should not have done it. You should have structured it in such a way that you could commit to your ending and let it be the reality of the world you've created.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or you know, it's not that it was all a dream is always a terrible choice. It, it's often a great choice, especially in films that are surreal and fantastic anyway or some sort of you know know—I'm thinking of obviously wizard of oz being a great example of, of this mm. the fact that it was all a dream or was maybe a dream it's a little ambiguous uh, that just adds to the uh, the fun of the picture and, and that's just part of it uh, but here it's just it just feels very gut punchy
0: i'm gonna say it's uh, writers out there i would not advise you to try it was all a dream it it works in The Wizard of Oz, but I'd say that kind of outcome is rare. Most of the time, audiences are going to feel cheated.
1: Yeah, but at least this isn't just it was all a dream. This is it was all a dream, or was it? Because when <laughs> right, our yeah. human characters walk away from the cave, out, comes, out of the cave comes walking the Roman, reaching out towards the viewer. In fact, they do it like three times <laughs> just to drive home the... Uh, the, the the horror of the picture and I guess also get just a little more juice out of the 3D because it's like he's coming out of the screen at you
0: people were running screaming out of the theaters I'm sure <laughs> oh um, but Robot Monster I love you Robot Monster What what a film
1: yeah, I, I'm just noticing that the great one, uh, the Roman boss, uh, in, in one of his final lines, he says, next psychotronic vibrations will smash the planet Earth out of the universe. That's pretty great because the psychotronic vibrations of this film, the psychotronic film, uh, can pretty much just smash the planet out of the universe. It certainly smashes the viewer out of the universe, at least for a
0: little over an hour. For about 62 minutes. <laughs> Oof, Those were the days. All right. I am uh, I am worn out. We've got to stop it there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've been going longer than the the, the film for sure. Uh, but, yeah, suffice to say, there's a lot in the 62 minutes of runtime that's worth worth watching. Yeah. Don't go watch a three hour picture. Watch Robot Monster three times in a row because um, there's just so much there. Again, the book I Cannot, Yet I Must by Anders Runstad is definitely worth picking up if you want a deeper dive into this picture. Uh, But, yeah, I I highly recommend Robot Monster. If this is your type of film, this is definitely the film for you.
0: Roman commands it.
1: All right. We're going to go ahead and close it out here, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have thoughts on Robot Monster, where it fits into your appreciation of film and your movie-going history, uh, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Just a reminder that if you want to look at all the films that we've uh, consider all the films that we've covered on Weird House Cinema, go to Letterboxed.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. It's a great website for uh, charting your own uh, uh, film favorites and films you want to see and that sort of thing. Uh, But we have a... user account there. Our username is weirdhouse, and we have a list there of everything we've covered and sometimes just a sneak peek of what we're covering in the next week. Uh, We're primarily a science podcast here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a
0: weird film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, JJ Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at
1: Zumo Zumo Play.